Thank you, Father, for the joy and the privilege of, of just gathering here as a group of men and young men. And we just thank you that we can take your word and we can apply it to our lives. And that not only is there in your word those things that declare to us the law of God, but there are also those things that declare to us the wisdom of God, the skill of God, the practical areas of life and give to us some very clear guidance as to how we ought to order ourselves. Help us, Lord, to, to learn these truths and to apply them. And we pray that Jesus Christ, our Lord, will be exalted in the result. And we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. And um, we right now are in chapter 11, uh, beginning with chapter 10 after that very... Um, important section of introduction in the first nine chapters, we, we discover that the main body of the Proverbs are found in chapters 10 through the 16th verse of chapter 22, where you have 375 Proverbs, each of which introduces uh, almost virtually a fresh subject. And uh, it's for that reason that we, uh, we are going much slower through this section even than we did in the first uh, sections simply because each verse presents a new subject and it's our purpose not to necessarily complete the book of Proverbs before the Lord comes, but uh, to uh, uh, cover these subjects and see what Scripture has to say about them. It's not, not enough uh, simply to take the advice uh, of the book of Proverbs and let it stand alone. It's important to understand the relationship of one word with another and then the accumulation of those words in the proverb, and then the concept and idea that you find elsewhere in Scripture. So we're trying to do that and be faithful to our task, and so we're moving along slowly, um, and uh, I hope surely. But uh, Proverbs chapter 11, and we're now in verse 15. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, and he that hateth suretyship is secure. Now, we talked last week about the idea of who the stranger is, and we talked about what suretyship is. Now, we want to just talk a little bit about this matter of smarting for it. When you co-sign a note, when you allow yourself to become surety uh, for another's debts, you guarantee another person's debts, then you will smart for it. The word is ruah. Ruah comes from the root Ra. Ra is the word that in the um, Old Testament is the common word for wicked. It actually does not mean wicked. It means wrong. And uh, the concept and idea of, of the wicked in the Old Testament uh, thinks in terms of varying degrees. It, it, everybody who is wicked begins with doing something wrong. Adam and Eve in the garden... Uh, uh, were wrong in disobeying God. And the result was what they did was wickedness in the eyes of God. But the idea of wrong can simply be uh, an error or a mistake uh, and come in varying degrees. The, when it says in the Old Testament uh, that the wicked do thus and so or the wicked has a certain judgment or the wicked um, are, are turned aside, um, they, the idea is that they did something wrong. And of course, if you look at the context, you often can pick up what the wrong was. And there are specific things that God says are an abomination to him. God hates all sin. Um, but God also is a God of mercy. And God is willing to uh, forgive the wicked, forgive those that are wrong. That's a very fascinating verse where this comes into play uh, in, a, in, in not so blatant a sense as wickedness and that is where in Proverbs, um, hmm, I'm not sure, 29, is it 29? Well, anyway, one of, one of these um, uh, late Proverbs here, uh, not 29.1, 28.1, uh, it says, The wicked flee when no man pursues. That's what the uh, psychologists would call paranoia. They're fleeing when no one pursues. But you'll notice who does that. It's the wicked. And if you use the word raw in its, in its simplest form, 
then you, 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 you can say when a person does something wrong, he becomes paranoid. On the other hand, the righteous, who, those who do the right thing, are as bold as a lion. And you have quite a contrast because here you have no perceived threat on the part of the person who is wicked, who does the wrong thing. They have no perceived threat whatsoever. But um, the, the righteous have a perceived threat. It's implied in the, in the text that there is something that really may be dangerous. But yet they go into that bold as lions. And here's the person with no perceived threat. Uh, and, and they are frightened even though there's nothing to be frightened of. And the world is filled with people like that. What's the, what's the difference? What's the contrast? Well, one does the thing that's wrong and he is chased by his own guilt. The other person does the thing that's right and even though he's walking into the teeth of danger, he knows that he has done the right thing and therefore he steps forward with confidence. So that's, that's just a picture of how this word is used. But the word has, uh, carries with it an idea of, of consequence involved and the idea of being broken and be good for nothing. To be broken to the place that you're good for nothing. And uh, therefore, uh, when it's used in this form, ruah, uh, it, it's used with the idea of, uh, of being broken or, being, or suffering evil or suffering brokenness. Um, and it's, it's an unusual verb, really. It occurs 45 times, mostly in the Psalms. And it has to do with, with raising an alarm or uh, as, as in an attack in warfare, as an example. Uh, th this is like a red light going up before your eyes, uh, saying, stop, stop. This is, uh, you know, bridge out uh, or uh, uh, stop. Uh, the road is closed or, or something of that sort. It also was used for a, a cry of complaint or distress or pain. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 15, just uh, as an example, you may, if you want to mark it, you might want to turn to it. Otherwise, you can just let me read it to you. Isaiah chapter 15 and verse 4, and Hishbon shall cry out. There's the word, ruah. Hishbon shall cry out. And uh, Elela. Their voice shall be heard even unto Jahaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out. His life shall be grievous unto him. They will ruah, if you please. They will cry out. Uh, they, will, they will sound a warning. Uh, they will sound the, the alarm that, it's, that there's something wrong here. Now, in 1115, um, the, the word smart that is used in the King James. Uh, what's used in the New American Standard? Have we got? Suffer. Suffer. All right. The same form that's translated here, smart, or in the New American Standard, suffer, is translated in chapter 13 in verse 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. It's translated destroyed there. Well, what is it in the NSP? Suffer again. All right, but the word can carry with it the idea of destruction. That when a when a person uh, does something wrong, it can bring about their own destruction. The idea uh, is is that of not of destruction in the sense of sense of annihilation, or even in the sense of eternal punishment, but rather the sense of being broken. Hence, the New American Standard suffer in both cases, because uh, a broken. A brokenness um, can be a brokenness physically, can be a brokenness financially. Personally, I think uh, that it, it fits with our idiom in English where we talk about somebody being broke uh, because uh, they're definitely going to be broke if they uh, uh, are going to guarantee another person's debts. So that's the, the idea here. Uh, one translation says, It fares ill, nothing but ill, with one who is surety for another. But now, in contrast to that, he that hateth, he that hateth, sane means to have an aversion to, be repulsed by. It actually is an emotional attitude toward things which are opposed, 
which are detested, which are despised, and uh, ones with which no wants, no contact, no uh, one wants no contact or no relationship. Uh, he doesn't want anything to do uh, with that sort of thing. It actually is a word, sane, is a word that is the opposite of love or desire. Suretyship is to be loathed. It is to be despised. It is to be something that you that you do not uh, do not do. Love uh, draws and unites. Hate, on the other hand, separates and keeps distant. And that's the the thing that we want to we want to do. Stay away from this. Avoid it. It's not it's not something that is desirable in any sense of the word. The word for surety uh, ship, excuse me, is a different word than the word surety in the first part of the verse. Basically the same meaning, a different word, a literary form used primarily uh, to bring about emphasis by a change of, change of word. And there happened to be another word in the Hebrew language which had this same idea, T-A-Q-A. Uh, it means to clap hands or to strike hands in a contract uh, agreement as opposed to the Arab that we saw that is translated surety in the first part of the verse. Surety ship here then is to clap hands, to strike an agreement. Uh, it, it puts against us a caution, uh, though not a forbidding, of course, but a caution even against any kind of a pact or an agreement. Uh, remember that in Psalm 15 there's a listing of things that um, that an individual who is successful, an individual who will never fall, will do. Among them are he won't take up a defense against his neighbor and uh, uh, things of this so sort. In that listing uh, there, is, there is the fact that a man who is going to never fail, never fall, will be a man who swears to his hurt and still keeps the bargain. The idea being that if you make an agreement or make a pact or make a promise only to find it's going to cost you more than you thought uh, it would, your word is worth far more than the money it's going to cost you. You make an agreement. By the way, uh, uh, let me say that that is a... That is a, a uh, something you should keep in mind in regard to making promises to your children. I'll tell you something. If, if a man, I, if I knew a man was, uh, had made a promise to his child and said, you know, I'm going to do thus and so with you on such and such a date. And I found out that that man um, came to a board meeting or or um, uh, had kept, a, uh, you know, made another appointment at that time and, and just laughed off the promise that he made to his son, I would be very upset. If I found out about it, I'd tell him about it. Because to make a promise and then to break your word and uh, to do so in any sense lightly, to do it as though, oh, well, no, I don't really, you know, how, can you imagine what this does to a kid when you tell him, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, take you to Marriott's next Saturday and then have, uh, have someone call up and say, could you do thus and so, or do you have anything on Saturday? And, uh, and, and, and the dad says, no, nothing important. Yeah, oh yeah, sure, I'll be glad to do that for you. Um, then you say to the son, you know, something's come up, son, I can't do that. To me, that's breaking your word. Just as clear and simple as can be. And uh, you may swear to your hurt. You may rather do the other thing than be with your son. But believe me, you must not swear, swear to your own hurt and then decide that you don't want it to hurt, so you're going to go ahead and do the other thing. You should be very, very careful... In any agreement you make, any promise you make, any commitment like that. And the warning sign goes up here that making any kind of an agreement, you have to be careful that you don't make the wrong, the wrong agreement with the wrong person and thereby swear to your own hurt. But here it's talking about this kind of an agreement. Uh, the same word is used in parallel with Arab 
in several places. Look at Proverbs 6 for a moment. Proverbs 6, verse 1. My son, if thou be surety for thy neighbor, <clears throat> if thou hast struck thy hand with a stranger. There you are again, the same idea. And it's used in parallel uh, with that same word. To strike hands is taka. Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy neighbor, go humble thyself, importune thy neighbor, give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. If you've made that agreement, uh, go and try to get the thing cared for and out of the way and get the thing back to an even keel as soon as you possibly can. Also in chapter 17, the two words are found side by side. In verse 18, a man void of understanding striketh hands, taka, and becometh surety, arab, in the presence of his neighbor. Also in chapter 22, chapter 22 and verse 26, where it says, Be not thou one of those who strike hands, taka, or of those who are sureties for debts, arab, if thou hast nothing to pay, why should he take away thy bed from under thee? That was in our reading this morning. He that hateth or despiseth, avoideth suretyship is literally on firm ground. Bata. One of the words uh, for faith, one of the five Hebrew words for faith used in the Old Testament repeatedly is the word bata. It is a word that has the idea of firmness or solidity. It also was used as a wrestling term where you pin someone or throw someone to the mat. You commit that thing to the mat. It's the idea of taking your burden and rolling it off of you onto the Lord when it's used as a word for faith. That the word has the idea and connotation in it of firmness or stability. So the the foundation or the idea of on firm ground uh, would be included here. It's the idea of well-being, security, which, uh, which uh, comes from having something or someone in which you place your confidence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Bata. Trust in the Lord. The word trust. With all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. That's shaky foundation. In all your ways, know him, and he shall direct thy paths. So um, when, you, when you're talking about trust from that, when the, the use of the word in that way, it's the idea of throwing yourself upon something that is solid, something that is firm, something that, where you, you, can, you can be on solid ground. In this particular case, the, the confidence. Now, obviously, the greatest trust should be in the Lord. Uh, we can't trust even our own judgment a lot of times. But the way the word is used here, the confidence that you have that you did not put yourself up as a surety for another one's debts. That's the thing that puts you on firm ground. You are responsible for your debts. And no matter what the other person does, you do not find yourself responsible for what they do, right or wrong. If they gain, they gain on their own. If you gain, you gain on your own. If they lose... They lose on their own. If you lose, you lose on your own. But the idea is that you are not, you're not putting any confidence in what the other person will do because you have no control over that for all practical purposes. And that's, of course, one of the things that I find time after time after time. When you find Christian people who have been involved in, in business deals, it's amazing. You know, people can go along and they can have a solid business deal uh, with a with a Christian friend, um, when they when they do it business like and everything is correct and everything is right and everybody understands their responsibilities and all of those things, but Christians sometimes are so silly. We should learn some things from the world because they are we are to be wise as serpents, wise as uh, serpents and harmless as doves. And uh, when you have when you have two Christians. And they have a loose business contract, and uh, uh, well, we'll it will it will work it out as we go along. That kind of an attitude. 
and uh, you you come along and and one person lets down and then suddenly you have lawsuits between Christians which are forbidden in scripture <clears throat> and uh, one problem after another arises why because because you you didn't put yourself on any kind of a, a solid ground it's much better for an individual uh, to uh, to to have uh, to have a, a clear agreement as to what is being done and uh, not just go into this, well, we're brothers in Christ and therefore everything's going to be fine because everything isn't fine. You're dealing with people. Whenever there is a responsibility on both sides, one may come through, the other may not. If that's not defined, the other person could say, oh, I, I saw it this way or I saw it that way. Be careful of that kind of thing. It's far better to realize every one of you will give an account of himself to God. God deals with us as individuals. And uh, one of the best things you can do is to, is to take the, the attitude, isn't it, in Luke 6, that you find the Lord saying that you're to pray for those that despitefully use you and you're to, you're to, you're to love your enemies and all of that. And then it says that you are, that you, you are to lend. You're to lend. See, there's nothing wrong with lending. But how are we to lend? We are to lend, hoping for nothing again. Now, does that sound like the usual kind of lending? What you do is you give. That's the point. If you lend, hoping for nothing again, hoping for no return, hoping not even to get it back, and you're to even do that, you can do that with your enemy. You want to go into business with your enemy, and you don't want to be surety for his debts. But you can do all the good that you can to him. Believe me, if you've got enough money to co-sign a note with a guy, then you've got enough money to give him the money and not have uh, lay a guilt trip when he doesn't pay it back. Then if he pays it back, you say, wow, this is a bonus. I never expected that. See? That's the attitude that the believer ought to have in, in those kind of relationships. And so if you have the money, give it to him. If you think it's a worthwhile thing, give it to him. And then you'll never have a lawsuit, right? Because you gave it to him. You never have to worry about whether you're going to sue him to get it back. You say, but I don't have that kind of money. Then you don't have enough money to co-sign the note. That's the point. If you don't have enough money to give it to him, you don't have enough money to co-sign the note. You say, but he said he'd pay it back. You don't operate on the basis of what another person says. Because that causes all kinds of conflicts between you as, as two individuals. If he's a non-believer, then it causes a, a problem of a contract between a believer and non-believer and unequal yoke. You don't want any part of that. If he's a believer, you don't want it later on a conflict to arise between two brothers that is going to cause you know, the, the necessity or even the threat of a lawsuit on his side or your side. You can imagine when, uh, uh, when you give the man uh, X number of dollars and uh, he, uh, his business goes sour and uh, he wants to implicate you in the bankruptcy and come before the judge and the judge say, well, what part did you have in it? Well, all I did, Your Honor, was give him X number of dollars. Imagine the judge saying, well, it doesn't sound to me as though we have a problem here. I don't know how you can be implicated because you gave him something. You didn't loan him something. You didn't guarantee his debts. You see, that's the difference. You've got to recognize that God does not want you to get selfish. He is not telling you by telling you this that, that, that you should become exclusive and say, this is mine, I'm going to hoard it, I'm going to keep it. No way. What he's saying is, it is foolish, foolish stewardship to co-sign a note for someone else and guarantee his debt. You had a question. Yeah, verse 26 from chapter 22 that we just read a little while ago. Yeah. Unless you have the extra cash on hand, don't That's not in the text. Got to remember, we're dealing with a paraphrase there. Yeah, strictly, it's strictly, um, you know, interpretive, because that's not what the that's not what the text s says. It it just simply is is putting it in in paraphrase form, which uh, allows for a little bit of uh, not just a little bit, a great deal of liberty. That's right. Uh, that's why that's why you don't study. A paraphrase. You study. You study a translation. You can read the paraphrase for fun, uh, but uh, don't don't study the translation. Yeah. What should be the attitude of the person who is receiving this money, as far 
Well, if I came to you and asked you for a loan, or better, worse yet, I come to you and I say, will you guarantee my note? Um, I'll pay you back. I, I'll guarantee I'll pay the thing back. I've got the money coming in my next welfare check. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, well, you hear that. It's the strangest thing. You know, that's, that's not an uncommon thing for a person to come up and say, all I need is someone to co-sign for me. I'll have the money as soon as I get my next welfare check. And, uh, and they, they don't even see how inconsistent that is. But in any event, I come and I ask you to do that. And you say, no, uh, I, as a matter of principle, I never co-sign someone's note. What's your need? And you say to me, well, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, uh, roof caved into my house. And uh, I really, I, I, it's really going to cost me $5,000 uh, to get it fixed. I need to get it fixed now, even though I don't have the money, uh, because if the rain comes, it's going to ruin my house. Well, there's a bona fide need. He needs $5,000, and I happen to have $5,000. And the fellow says, well, if you can't sign the note, could you loan me the money? And you say, no, as, as a matter of principle, I don't, I don't loan money. Banks loan money, uh, and, and they uh, have a whole screening process, and the reason they won't loan you the money is because you're not a good credit risk. However, I want you to know that I have laid aside $5,000 that, that uh, I really believe uh, that you do have a worthwhile project here, and I would, uh, I would just like to, to give you that money. I'll tell you something, you do that for me, and you know what I want to do? I want to turn around at the after I get the money and say, now, I know you didn't loan this to me, but anybody that's as wise a steward as you are, you're a much wiser steward than I am. I Obviously, if I couldn't get credit, I, uh, I didn't have a, a very uh, good money management pattern. And, and therefore, what I want to do is I want to pay you back. Not, so I can, not because I didn't appreciate your gift, but because I, I want... Uh, you to have the privilege of doing that for somebody else. And since I can now afford to pay you back, I want to give you that money back. At least that's, I think, the kind of attitude that would be stirred up as a result. There would be some that would just accept it and say, wow, this is super. I don't have any, I don't have any debt. I got my roof fixed. And they'd go happily on their way. If that's the kind of attitude the person has, it might be that you would that that you would want to use this as an occasion to teach him something about stewardship and money management and uh, and reciprocal uh, concerns and all of those kind of things. But I think that when a person when a person has uh, been the recipient, you know, uh, uh, freely you have received, freely give is a principle uh, that Christ taught. Freely you have received, freely give. If if you have received something for nothing. The, there's another option. You might lay aside $5,000 not to give back to that person that gave it to you, but you might tell that other person, you know, I'm putting this money aside systematically because I want to pass on what you did to me. I want to, when someone comes along and says, will you co-sign a note with me? I want, I want to be able to say to them, no. As a matter of principle, I don't co-sign a note and I don't loan money, but I would be willing to give you this and uh, to to loan it with no guarantee of payback. To see that in the nation, in the nation of Israel, they had a fascinating thing, because they allowed the Old Testament allowed people to loan money. Repeatedly, you find there were certain restrictions. Uh, you were to you, you could loan particularly. Uh, you would loan your money to those within the nation of Israel. Uh, that is a believer to a believer. All right, but there was a catch, and the catch was that you could not foreclose. You could not foreclose. Repeatedly, you find. There were certain restrictions. Uh, you were to, you, you could loan, particularly, uh, you would loan your money to those within the nation of Israel. Uh, that is, a believer to a believer, all right? But there was a catch. And the catch was that you could not foreclose. You could not foreclose. Man puts up his house for security, and uh, or he puts up his coat for security, and that's the only security you have. God says, "Fine, go ahead." But if the guy doesn't pay, you can't foreclose. You can't take his coat. You can't take his house. And uh, as a result, 
uh, it would it would discourage the attitude that uh, I'm going to force the person to give me this back. And it created an atmosphere where a person, when he loaned the money, understood he may never get it back. And that there was nothing he could do about it. Now, the amazing thing is that uh, they still did it. And I think that it's something that really hasn't been tried. But I think that something in the Christian community that could be a dynamic thing. Uh, some people within a fellowship like this would have more than another. And just think, just think how wonderful it would be if where others had need, those that did have money, like it happened in the early church. Barnabas had a piece of property. It was his. It was his as completely as could be. And he felt led of the Lord to sell that property and give the money to those that had less than he. What good was a piece of property to him? He was going to be a traveling evangelist anyway. And so he dumps the property and he gives the money away. And uh, then Ananias and Sapphira come along and they liked, they liked, you see, the response that everybody had to Barnabas. I mean, he was really the good guy of the congregation. Other people had given bits and pieces here and there, a dollar or two or you know, a denarii or two, and uh, put that in, and that wasn't a big deal. But here's a man who, who takes what should have been his retirement money. He takes a whole business, and he gives it because of compassion for the poor. Everybody said, have you heard what Barnabas did? Did you hear what Barnabas did? Because Barnabas sold his property. And the and fire liked that. And they thought, boy, we'll do the same thing. Only problem was, they, they came and they said, we're going to repeat that act. We have a piece of property. It's worth X number of dollars. And we're going to give all of it to the Lord. Now the mistake they made was in setting the price before they checked the real estate market. Because when they found out the property was worth more, they thought, well, we really only agreed to give this much. When in actual fact, they'd agreed to give it all. See? Had they sold it for that price. But you see, they, they were Jews. And they, you know, money is money and business is business and all of that. And they were able to, to, with some shrewd planning on the thing, they were able to find a guy who paid them more. They thought, we'll just keep this and we'll get the same honor and the same prestige as Barnabas did and we'll, we'll hold this back. And when they came, Peter said, is this all? Said, yeah, yeah, this is all. Now that was that was the sin of the thing more than anything else was lying to the Holy Spirit. They shouldn't have said that. I wonder what would have happened, don't you? If they would have said, you know, actually that's sold for more than we thought and it isn't all, but it is the amount that we thought it was going to be worth and we felt that we should give that amount. I, I've always wondered what would have happened in that case because the sin specifically says they lied to the Holy Spirit. They conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit and they both carry, they carried them out dead. And we can just be thankful that that was an example in the early church and not the practice of the Holy Spirit all the way through the age of grace because we would have a lot more funerals than we could handle if all of a sudden that came in play because we have people today that do things similar to that all of the time, I'm sure. And if everybody just died on the spot as a result, it would be a, be a bad thing. But you see, the, the, uh, the whole area of finance is very, very important in terms of, of recognizing that we, that we are to be certain that we're on solid ground, on firm ground, that we've planted our feet on something that's solid rather than all of these shaky business deals that go around. One of the things that, that I just want to say in terms of finance is that to me, to me, they're the two strongest arguments that I can think of against incurring debt is, number one, the borrower becomes the slave to the lender. If I understand Scripture right, God wants me to act individually in so much as, as I can, uh, where I, I contract a marriage then my wife is included in that individuality or my family is included in that. But I am to, I, every one of us individually can give an account of himself to God. And I have to be, I have to be able to, uh, to, to uh, make decisions 
without having to consult the person I borrow money from. And if I can, if I can borrow money on a real piece of property that, that in some way is, is virtually guaranteed to, to give me a payback. In other words, if, if, I, if I, uh, I borrowed money to buy my house, and if tomorrow, um, if tomorrow the bank had to take over the house, they would not lose. So my concern would not be how much I would lose. My concern would be how much would they lose. In all likelihood, I could sell it and give the money back to the bank and we would be, be even and I would still make some profit. That's likely what would happen. But in case that didn't, in case I just couldn't sell it and I had to turn it back to the bank, the bank's going to come out smelling like a rose because the equity in that house has built up tremendously compared to what I actually paid for the house. So that kind of borrowing, you see... Uh, does not leave any stench in the nostrils of the person who loaned you the money or the institution that loaned you the money. There's no problem there. But on the other hand, when I, when I borrow something uh, on, uh, where I cannot walk away from it, I borrow something, if I borrow money for food, as an example, um, and then I consume the food, now I've got nothing to show for it except a few extra pounds. And that, that doesn't have much equity. And so, and so now God wants me, to, wants me to do something. I cannot leave that because I have an obligation to pay a debt back first. And so that links with the other thing. The, the, the first thing is that the, the borrower becomes the servant to the lender. He becomes his virtual slave. You can't make a move without consulting that person. If God wants you to move, you should be able to move. And that's the second thing, is this. That if God wants us to live with no attachments to this world, be not entangled with the affairs of this life, that you may please Him who hath called you to be a soldier. And I know all kinds of people. In fact, you may be some of them. If I said to you that, uh, which I never would because God would never do it this way, but let's say that we go to the Old Testament economy and I'm a prophet of God and I step forward and I say to you, God has, God has called you to leave all you have and go to the mission field. There'd be a lot of you that say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Whether God wants me to or not, I can't do it because I'm entangled. I have all these debts. I couldn't possibly go with these debts. Most mission boards... When they, when they have you fill out an application, they'll ask you that, uh, that question. Do you have any debts? And if you have outstanding debts, they generally will tell you, get the debts paid first. And you'd be surprised how many people sense the call of God upon their life to go somewhere, do something for God, and cannot do it simply because they're entangled with the affairs of this life. It tangles you up and when you have all of those kind of strings and so on, you can't, you can't walk away from that. You ought to live your life in such a way that God says, pack your bags tomorrow and go, you can do it. And there are a lot of people that sort of have the, the attitude that, um, oh, well, Christ is going to come. I might as well incur all the debt I can and leave the Antichrist holding the bag, see? But you see, to me, even though... Obviously, the Antichrist will hold the bag on a lot of things. I'm not sure that it is a good witness and testimony to incur that kind of, of entanglement for these other reasons. Owe no man anything except for the one debt you can never pay, and that's to love one another. All right, now, the Old Testament tells us that we are not to trust in a lot of things but rather to trust God. Since it's saying here that we are, we are to uh, have a firm foundation, we are to put our trust in the fact that we, we don't have to worry. One thing we don't have to worry about is the fact we've co-signed a note. There are a lot of things that God says you are not to trust. This is one of the things that you can trust, at least in its limited way. The emphasis of the Old Testament and the New as well is not trust, but trust God. Number one, you're not to trust man. 
Let's look at some verses. Psalm 118, verse 8. Psalm 118 and verse 8. It is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. I don't know whether this bit of trivia is interesting to you or not, but that happens to be the central verse of the Bible. There's an odd number of verses, don't remember exactly how many, in the Bible. And uh, this is the central verse. It's the very middle verse of the Bible. You're right now, our dead center in the middle of the Bible as to the counting of verses. This particular psalm was the favorite of Luther. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, telling you here that it's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. Look at uh, Psalm 146, verse 3. Psalm 146 and verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. Now, prince obviously is a man, so we'll leave it in that category uh, rather than adding another. Don't put your trust in princes, ruling men. Don't put your, your trust in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. That is, your peers. You don't put trust in those things. Look at Proverbs chapter 25. And verse 19, where it says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You ever have a foot out of joint? All right, that, remember the pain and the agony of it? Well, that's like putting your trust in a man that is not faithful. And so be careful in whom you put your trust. Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. You're not to put confidence in man. Secondly, you're not to put confidence in wickedness. You're not to trust in wickedness. Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah 47 and verse 10. For thou hast turned in thy wickedness, thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Now they, somebody always got an ease up his sleeve. He's always got an angle. He is putting trust in his own wickedness. He believes that he's smart enough to get out of any deal. And therefore he puts trust in his own wickedness. You're not to put trust in violence and oppression. Psalm 55. Psalm 55 and verse 23. Thou, O God, shalt bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloody or violent and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in thee. Ah, oh, the psalmist here, David, saying, you know, I'm not going to, not going to put my confidence in these men that are violent, bloody, and deceitful men. Look at uh, Psalm 60 and verse 10. Psalm 60 and verse 10. Wilt thou not, O God, who has cast us off, and thou, O God, who didst not go out with our armies? That's not what I wanted. 62, did I say? 62, verse 10. Trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. So there you can add the next one, which is riches too from that verse. But notice, trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. Isaiah 30 and verse 12. Isaiah 30 
And verse 12, Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, Because ye despise this word, and trust in oppression and perverseness, and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be as you, uh, to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, whose break cometh suddenly in an instant, and he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that's broken in pieces he shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it assured to take fire from the hearth or take water out of the pit. It's the bursting of a the bursting of a vessel, the pressure from inside, boom, it's gonna blow to pieces to any individual that's trusting in violence and oppression. You're not to trust in riches. Psalm forty nine. Psalm forty nine and verse six. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. You trust in your riches? Just remember this. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You can't purchase the things that are really important with money. If we ever learn that, it'll make, it'll make a world of difference in our attitude in life. You cannot purchase the things that really matter with money. You cannot purchase a good name. And that's why the text this morning, the first verse we read in chapter 22, says the good name is better than much riches. You can't purchase a good name. You can't purchase a happy family. Money will never do it. You can't purchase obedient children. You can't purchase the blessing of God. You can't purchase heaven. You can't purchase your own soul. Those are things you cannot purchase. Therefore, trust not in riches. Psalm 52 and verse 7. Lo, this is the man who made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. The man that is living in sin, boasting himself of his mischief. Mighty man. And yet here's a man who is de devoid of the wisdom and the help and the blessing of God. Over in Proverbs 11, a text where we are, we'll be coming to this later. Verse 28, He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Number five, not to trust in idols. You're not to trust in idols. The idols that we have today are really anything, anything that compete with or are on a par with Almighty God. Anything in your life that it competes with or is on a par with Almighty God. If you have anything at all in your life that vies for first place, that is an idol. And I don't care what it is. It can be your family. It can be your wife. It can be your children. It can be your car. It can be your job. It can be a lot of other things. If it vies for first place, it is an idol. And we're never to trust in idols. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. And verse 6. I have hated those who regard lying vanities. Vanities, the word for idols. But I trust in the Lord. There's a contrast there between the idolater and the person who worships only God. 100 and, Psalm 115 in verse 8. They who make them, that is, it's describing idols there. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands, they have mouths, they speak not, eyes they have not, they, uh, but they see not. Uh, eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They who make them are likened unto them. So is every one who trusteth in them. You are like them when you make them. And you are like them when you trust them. You don't trust in idols. Isaiah chapter 
42 and verse 17. Isaiah 42 and verse 17. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in carved images that say they uh, to the melted images, ye are our gods. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk. Chapter 2 is too early in the morning find Habakkuk, isn't it? Verse 18. What profiteth the carved images that its maker hath engraved it, the melted image and the teacher of lies, that the maker of his work trusteth in it to make dumb idols? What profit is there in that? None whatsoever. Number 6. Military power. You're not to trust in that. Deuteronomy chapter 28. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 28. And verse 52. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until the high and fortified walls come down wherein thou trustest. Throughout all the land he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. The enemy is going to come in, eat the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your, your, your fields, and you're going to be destroyed, and they're going to come in, they're going to besiege you, and you got behind walls, and you said, we're like every other nation, we are now secure, we don't have to trust God anymore, and you're going you're gonna to lose that. And the walls of Jerusalem were, were thrown down so that not one stone stood upon another, and that came to actual fulfillment. The there's several other verses I want to give you there. We'll have to start this next week. I got a couple more things on this verse before we leave it, and uh, then we'll get into the next verse next time around. All right, let's have a word of prayer together. Thank you, Father, for the the rich and full time that we can have, and just talking about these things from your Word and seeing how repeatedly your Word tells us the truth. We thank you for that ring of truth that the Word has. Won't you now give us a rich and full day. Help us keep our priorities straight. Help us not to trust in things that have no hope, but rather put our trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So help us to enjoy our job. Help us to enjoy the money we make, to enjoy the pleasures of life in so much as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for adding all these things to us. Help us to go our way, serving you and trusting you and loving you and declaring your name to the ends of the earth. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.